In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Dear faithful, no man, says our Lord, can serve two masters. These two masters are God and mammon. And the word here, used by our Lord, mammon, means riches, material wealth. This is the sense in which our Lord is using it here today in the Gospel. Riches are, of course, they are not of their very nature bad or evil. When lawfully acquired and when used agreeably in the designs of God, riches help the possessor to gain the true goods that he needs for his soul, to store these goods up in himself, in the kingdom of his eternal home, this kingdom which, of treasures which neither thieves can reach, nor rust, nor rust can reach. Ever since the incarnation, where the divine word espoused poverty to himself, we know it is the poor who are heaven's nobility, so to speak. And yet, the mission of the rich man is a great one. He is permitted to be rich in order that he may be God's minister to make all the several portions of material creation turn to the glory of the Creator. He graciously vouchsafes to entrust into his hands the feeding and, the support, and supporting the dearest of God's children, the poor. That is, the indigent, the suffering members of Christ. He calls them to uphold the interests of his church and be the promoter of works connected with the salvation of souls. He confides to the rich man the keeping up of the beauty of his churches. This rich man, who lives his life in this way, should not fear. It is not of him that our Lord speaks the anathemas he uttered so frequently against the rich ones of this world. He has but one master, the Father who is in heaven, whose steward he humbly and gladly acknowledges himself to be. Mammon does not domineer over him. On the contrary, he makes her his servant and obliges her to minister to his zeal in all good works. The solicitude he takes in spending his wealth and acts of justice and charity is not that which the gospel today blames. For in all such solicitude, he is but following our Lord's precept of seeking first the kingdom of God and the riches which pass through his hands in furthering good works do not distract his heart from that heaven where his heart is because there is his true treasure. It is quite otherwise when riches, instead of being regarded as a simple means, become the end of man's existence. And that, to such an extent, is to make him neglect or even forget his last end. The ways of the covetous man, says the scripture, destroy the souls of, the, of their possessors. The apostle explains this by saying that the love of money drives a man into temptation and the snares of the devil. By the countless unprofitable and hurt, hurtful desires that it excites within him. It drowns men in destruction and perdition. And yet the more greedy, the more avaricious a man becomes, paradoxically, the less he spends. To nurse his treasure, to gaze upon it, to be thinking upon it night and day, 
when obliged to go from home. That is what he lives for. His money becomes his idol. Yes, mammon becomes not merely his master whose commands are obeyed before all, before all others, but it is his God, before which he sacrifices friends, relatives, country, and himself. For he devotes, as is said in the Book of Wisdom, he throws his whole soul and body away before his idol. We should not be astonished at the gospel declaring that God and mammon are irreconcilable enemies. Who was it but mammon that had our Lord sacrificed on its altar for 30 pieces of silver? Of all the devils in hell, is there one whose guilt is deeper than the fallen angel who promoted Judas to sell sell the Son of God to his executioners? It is the avaricious man, the greedy man, alone who can boast of the crime of deicide, of killing God. This vile love of money, which the apostle defines as the root of all evils, can lay claim to having produced the greatest crime that was ever perpetrated. But the way of life which which unites us most perfectly to God is possible in every state of life, rich or poor. Only there must be one consideration observed, and that is, the soul must be detached from every tie that could keep her from going to God. A member of a religious order breaks these ties by three vows, which are in direct opposition to the triple concupiscence of fallen nature. And the layman, though he be living in the world, desires to be what his creator would have him be. To do this, he must, without the aid of the real separation which a member of a religious order makes, be quite completely detached from his own will, from sensuality, and and riches, in order that all his intentions and aspirations may be fixed on the eternal home, where his infinite loved treasure is. If he does not bring himself, even in the midst of his riches, to be as poor in spirit as the religious is indeed, his progress will be checked at the very first step he takes in the contemplative life, in the life of prayer. And if he allows the obstacle to block up the way, he must give up all hope of rising in light and love above the lowly paths of the majority of Christians. If, on the other hand, he will recall the words of the one who taught us to seek first the kingdom of God, truly, all these things shall be added unto him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.